It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to the program. Sitting in this week for Mr. Morrison is my man, Amino Hassan, for all the folks that enjoy us on Sundays on NBA Radio. Uh, NBA usually do the better commercials. Would you like to let them know about our program on, on Sunday morning? Jax, I would love to. Sunday mornings, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern on SiriusXM NBA Radio, Channel 86. NBA Insiders, it's me, it's Jason Jackson. We take you on a nice little tour of what happened the night before. We give you a look forward to what's happening that later that night. And most importantly, the guests. Uh-huh. We always come with the guests. We bring them inside. That's like it's, it's responsibility within the name. I mean, it's great to have you back. You've, you've been with us here on Forward Progress. You, you, you were here in, in, when we planted the seeds all over Sirius XM Sports, just round tables. Uh, We've gotten through over a year of these shows, by the way. Uh, yeah. We're coming up. Last little bit of talking about the, the confluence and connection of race and sports. A little bit later in the program, we're going to visit with a um, non-agent sports attorney who focuses in on name, image, and likeness. Find out how that's growing. Really get a real understanding fully of it. It seems like sometimes you get these acronyms and they become larger than... Uh, life, and you don't really uh, dive inside and also check some of the data on how students of color are impacted in that space that aren't that elite level star. We'll have our Black History Spotlight, uh, I believe the last one of the month for us on the program. Um, and I'm really excited about sharing what's happening at the University of Maryland. But first, uh, the story we've been talking about for some time on the program, I mean, and that is uh, what was initially the firing a former Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores. Coach Flores putting everything on the line, suing the National Football League and everybody that he's interviewed with, quite honestly, uh, in, in the process, and then landing a position uh, with the Steelers, which is the area I want to start with. Hmm. I am a Browns fan, and so I have to put my fandom down because the Rooney family and the Pittsburgh Steelers organization provided leadership in a space that was so necessary for the National Football League uh, in a way that no other organization had before him. That there have been innovations, there have been progressions, but to make sure that at the very least, and we can knock how the rule is handled, uh, but at least putting in place legislation in the league that was provided, or was at least closing a gap of cultural association. That so many people that were getting opportunities in the NFL and so many other places, uh, it was about relationships and people who knew each other, people who were comfortable with each other. And black coaches were not getting into those circles. And then this rule was put in place to at least uh, provide opportunity in every search for candidates of color uh, to get opportunity to show that they could lead, uh, that it went beyond being uh, a position coach coordinator, but that highest level of leadership uh, was a transcendent space, a bridge needed to be connected 
And now with what we all thought was a career killer, a courageous one that coach Flores probably was not going to, and he probably had to accept that himself, that I'm standing on something bigger than my career. I'm standing on principle and what I'm tired of is going into interviews, knowing full well that I'm not a real and serious candidate. And I will legally call everyone in the NFL to the carpet on that. That would end his career. And all of a sudden it did. Right. Right. And it's important to note that when we talk, usually as, you know, people of color, people in marginalized groups, we talk about the concept of, yeah, I interviewed, but it wasn't a real interview. Like that, I wasn't taken seriously as a candidate. Usually, if we're going to be honest, it's a feeling you get. It's a feeling you get from the way the interview went. It's a feeling you get from the interactions you have with the representatives before, during, and after the interview. But rarely do you actually have confirmation, Jax. We can look at the circumstantial evidence and say, well, of all the minority and marginalized candidates that they've interviewed over the years, how many of them got hired? And you can do some legwork and math like that if that information is available to you, but that still really isn't confirmation that that's what happened. What happened to Brian Flores is he got unequivocal confirmation that the interview that he was going to have with the Giants that hadn't happened yet was merely performative in nature, right? And we know that because Bill Belichick texted him, congratulations, not realizing he was texting the wrong Brian. Mm. That is insane. That is wild, right? That is wild that it's one thing for them to internally have an idea, hey, this we're going to hire this guy, but for appearances, we got to interview this fellow over here. That's one thing, and that's bad enough as it is. But to be so cocksure of your selection, that now you start telling people outside the organization, yeah, we go with your boy Brian, yeah, yeah. Like, that's another level of we're not taking this process seriously. We're not taking this rule, the Rooney rule, seriously. I won't lie to you, Jax. I was one of the people thought that Brian Flores, it was a, a step for all of us that he yeah. was going to take but he was, in essence, sacrificing himself in the process. I didn't think he'd get another job in the NFL. I sincerely didn't. So I was pretty surprised to see him get a position with the Steelers. And I can only think that, well, first of all, we have to point out the Rooney rule is is named after the, the uh, owner of the Steelers, our Rooney, right? But I can only assume that Mike Tomlin had to have a massive influence in this decision. And, and Jax, the, the, that all ties up to me. I, the way I want to kick it forward is I thought about how much security Mike Tomlin had to have in order to have a hire like this. And then I escalated a step further and said, what does it take for a coach to hire Brian Flores? Well, looking at Mike Tomlin's resume, we know – He's been a head coach for 17 years, or excuse me, for 15 years. And we know that he's made the playoffs in 10 out of those 15 years. We know he's never been under 500 ever in his career. And we know that he has a Super Bowl championship and another Super Bowl appearance. Pretty much a Hall of Fame resume in order to have the kind of 
breathing room and wherewithal to bring in Brian Flores, who's a very good football coach, onto his staff. Let's make no mistake about this. This, this is a significant, right, dual hire. You pointed out the most it's so tough to talk about what's most important. There's, there's a job to do, right, which is to win football games. This man is a highly regarded defensive coach who has head coaching experience, and now he's a senior divis- uh, defensive assistant and, and will elevate your linebackers as, as their position coach. That's, that's the hire, right? That's the resume hire. But to really say to the football universe – Oh, by the way, while you all are all in this vice that you're rightfully in, we're, we're, I'm, I'm not, as a head coach, going to turn my back on that. And my organization now has my back. How uncomfortable does that become? The Rooneys clearly are cool with being uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. That they've, they've articulated that. They've shown that. They are the one thing unlike the others currently, by the mm-hmm. way in the National Football League. So with, with that being said, how hard of a sell do you think it was, if at all? Man, that's a billion dollar question, ain't it, Jax? Because right. I'm tr- how much of it is a progressive ownership group? Right. Perhaps the most progressive ownership group in the National Football League. And how much of it is the influence of who at one point a couple of months ago the only black head coach in the nfl before some of those positions were filled uh, over the offseason um and not only that and when you say his influence influence rooted again in his own personal excellence at doing this job right we talk about this often uh as black people we don't have the luxury of being average we've got to be above average we've got to be you know kind of it's got to be unquestionable oh he's good at his job or she's good at her job because average or around there puts you in a position where given the choices more often than not the powers that be go towards a a complexion that more closely mirrors their own to be to put it delicately and by the way brian flores is an excellent example of that brian flores if he just went off of just his his blind resume he's got three seasons in uh miami he's one game under 500 that first year is five and eleven that was the year that everyone said they were tanking by the way uh ten and six his second season in a playoff appearance. Uh, and then, uh, excuse me, uh, 10 and six his second season, and then nine and eight in his third season, right? That sounds like, okay, fairly average. So you factor in the Miami Dolphins have been terrible for a very long time. And that these two back to back winning seasons, Jax, represent the only back to back winning seasons they've had in a billion years right in at least 15 years so what we're saying here is yeah i guess if i just said hey got this coach three years he's a game under 500 he said well sounds pretty average to me 
Well, when, you, when you put it in the context of, but these three years are probably like the greatest three years the Dolphins have had in quite a while. And he still got let go. That's what I'm talking about. So the only way Brian Forrest could have kept his job is if he had been 12 and five and went to the conference title. Like he's got to excel in a way that it's almost undeniable. You've got to keep this guy and see where it goes. It's going to be amazing to watch this man, coach linebackers, put together defensive game plans and also be in litigation with the National yeah. Football League and some of its franchises. Yeah. Jackson, am I naive to be hopeful that he's going to do a good good enough job there and they're going to be good enough where he's going to get another crack at a head coaching job somewhere? I, I think you are being hopeful, yes. I think you. I, 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 if so, it's um, when when Coach Tomlin is ready to be done in that position. I, that that's my gut. I want to be wrong, and right. I, I want to believe that you can get beyond the win loss factor of litigation if you're a, a, a league or a team with a series of people that that are so insulated, so connected, so protective the majority of the time. That, that stuff can get overcome that that's that's a lot we'll find out let's take a quick break when we come back uh, our guest today is luke fedlin luke is a protector educator educator national resource for athletes at all levels uh he is a non-agent attorney with porter wright uh, they have a sports law practice uh he is the lead partner in that space he has a focus on the wonder of cash opportunities that are available to our young mm -hmm. athletes now, thanks to name, image, and likeness. You've heard it, you've heard NIL, we'll dive deep in it, learn more, and how it's impacting things across the board in college sports as forward progress continues. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Great to have with us here on Forward Progress, Luke Fenn who is in a space we talked about a great deal on the program. Uh, we're still learning a great deal about name, image, and likeness and how it's going to impact things. And Luke, as we were preparing for your visit, the one thing that I did not consider is how far back you have to reach with young people. You can't now at this stage walk on campus, get your documentation, learn full well what it's all about, and hit the ground running, and all of a sudden, Dr. Pepper has a deal waiting on you. Right. Um, that, that can happen for a handful of cats at some power five institutions. Uh, but before we get into what it means, because I think we should probably get into that. Uh, a lot of people hear NIL and they think they got it all figured out. Uh, why was this an area that you felt like you wanted your fingerprints on? Yeah, absolutely. First, you know, and foremost, Jason, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, this. This area of name, image, and likeness is, is an area that's meaningful to me in a whole host of ways. So I have worked with professional athletes as a non-agent sports attorney. Um, and also I started my career working with professional athletes on the financial side. And so I have worked with, with pro athletes about 17 years or so. And I have seen over the years how athletes have been taken advantage of. I've seen over the years the challenges, uh, not really getting qualified independent advice. And when 2019, when California passed their legislation around name, image, and likeness, I knew instantly 
in that moment that this is going to be something that student athletes across the country would be able to participate in. The NCAA couldn't overrule state law. Uh, so once a state had passed it, then we knew that was going to be the law. Now, they could put some parameters on it and some restrictions, um, but I'm sure we're going to get into more of that a, a little bit later. But we knew that this was coming. And so having worked with athletes for so long, I knew that there were going to be areas that athletes would need to be educated on because now they could earn compensation. And so before this, most athletes at the college level, you know, maybe would get their stipend check and have an extra couple extra bucks, you know, each month. But this could have significant implications when you start to talk about tens of thousands or in some cases, even hundreds of thousands of dollars getting put in the hands of, of young student athletes. So let's let's hip our, our listeners specifically to what this really means dollar figure for student athlete. There, there's a terminology that maybe a lot of people don't realize, cost of attendance. And yes. we kind of reach that layer prior to name, image, and likeness. What does it actually cost to be in school? Not just tuition and books, but rent and travel and all the things, all the accoutrements of walking out your front door yes. and taking your first class and, and going to your first practice. This is a different layer of that. This is allowing the student athlete to control uh, and profit from um, their notoriety as a student athlete uh, without any of the amateurism rules that were in place before uh, that, that caused that to be a violation in so many places. How is that impacting things early on? Oh, absolutely. So, so and I, I'm glad you bring that up because it's so important to be clear you know, with listeners who are, are just kind of hearing some of the, the headlines of athletes making a lot of money, what actually is name, image, and likeness, and then thus subsequently, what's the actual impact of NIL? So, so name, image, and likeness, it's not about student athletes getting paid by the university. This isn't a, a pay-for-play type of scenario. This is a, an athlete being able to contract with a third party, a company, a brand, you know, a business, uh, you know, in their local community, in their hometown, to be able to provide a service where they ultimately license or lend their name, image, and likeness to. So, so from that perspective, it really is a student athlete having a deal with a company or a brand. That is so different than cost of attendance, where cost of attendance says, okay, all of our student athletes who go to this particular institution, this is the amount of money needed to actually attend this institution. And therefore, across the board, student athletes, this is the, the bump that you'll get um, in terms of a stipend at the end of, of each month or at the end of the semester or beginning of semester. This is a situation where it's very much individualized and it's based on that individual athlete. Are, do they have a social media following, right? That a brand wants to tap into? Do they have a level of celebrity status that the brand wants to tap into? Or, or even, you know, are they someone that is an influencer in society that ultimately can help a brand get a return on the investment that they make in having an athlete do a deal with them. So now it's the issue of how do you engage in that space? Some universities have hired a third party individual like yourself or a third party organization that is now special. This has created a whole new business <laughs> for, yeah. for marketing companies to connect players with, um, with, with, with folks that are trying to market. Uh, what what is is this the wild west or is it as as it's or is it as unique as each institution and how they want to deal with it well he i mean here's i think kind of the root of that that question because this comes up a lot and i've used the phrase too right in some respects this is the wild wild west in the sense that it is uncharted territory it's brand new 
student athletes are dealing with it for the first time. And let's be honest, schools are dealing with it for the first time. You have people who are heads of compliance who have never looked at an endorsement deal before. They never had to, right? You've got athletic directors that are, you know, trying to shepherd their student athletes, their coaches, their administrators through this brand new environment that they have never kind of had to deal with before. But let's also be clear. We know the business of college sports. We know how, you know, if we want to talk wild, wild west, we could talk about the billions of dollars in media deals and things like that that are, that are um, you know, created for, you know, the promotion and the marketing of our, our college sports. I mean, so, so from that perspective, we're, we're talking about now student athletes being able to earn money off of something that anyone else in society can earn money off of their own name, their own image and their own likeness. The fact though, that this has been forbidden by the NCAA regulations for so many years, really since the inception of, of you know, uh, scholarship athletes in, in college sports, right. it's a big hurdle to kind of get through, but but this is something that people have been doing and are continuing to do every single day. So yes, it is a bit of the wild, wild west, but it's also an opportunity for student athletes to start learning some real life lessons earlier in life. Luke Fedlin with us here on Forward Progress as we dive deep inside uh, name, image, and likeness. Uh, talk to us about the, the inequities of it all. When you think about Olympic sports, when you think about so many women's sports, it's not the same platform. If we're all being honest, and let's, that's what Forward Progress is for, if we're being honest, football drives this. At some institutions, maybe basketball does. Uh, but it, it, how, this is fair market dynamic, but there, there is a different feel on a college campus of wanting to create equity. How is Title IX maneuvered in this space when you're talking about a third party institution that's not necessarily governed by those same dynamics? fascinating, you know, kind of thing to, to look into when we think about the, the potential for inequities. What, what we do know is that the rules, I was about to say the rules are the same. They're not really the same nationwide because there's no national standard here, but within an institution, right. the institution has its policy and that policy applies to all of their student athletes. So what, what you're right. Let's just be clear. Football drives a lot of this. There's so much money in football in college football, there's so much money going behind some elite college football athletes, but not all of them, right? Just because you're on a, 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 a roster, even at a power five school, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be getting all of this money and earn all this money through name, image, and likeness. Obviously, your stars, your starters, your quarterbacks, your wide receivers, your big names, those folks who most likely are going to play professionally anyway in the coming years, they're getting some of those big deals that we see. But here's what's interesting. When we talk about the, the, the equity of it all, the policy allows a student athlete to engage in earning compensation off of their name, image, and likeness in ways they've never been able to before. What's fascinating is when we start to look at women's sports, women's sports historically, uh, stu women student athletes are more engaged with their social media following. So when a brand is looking for social media influencing, they're looking for impact, right? They, they ultimately want to make sure that they're, you know, be able to dive deeper into a particular demographic that they're trying to recruit. So women's sports in terms of kind of value of their social media, it's, it's actually high. In fact, right. the, the last number I saw was 2019. There may be numbers out for 2020 at this point, but in terms of the uh, college sports team that was 
the most that had the most engaged social media following in 2019 was UCLA women's gymnastics. Um, and they, if you've ever checked them out on social media, I mean, you see why they do an, a great job of just highlighting the, the, the women on their team and their capabilities. But then we can also look at Paige Beckers, um, uh, a couple other players at UConn, women's basketball that have done national deals. Um, we've got, you know, Sedona Prince out of Oregon that's done some, some great deals and some others, um, you know, as well. So, so the opportunity, I think that's the key. The opportunity exists and it's not just for, uh, the traditional sports marketing that we think about. It's also for that student athlete that wants to start a business or to provide a product or a service um, that wants to, you know, be able to earn compensation in ways they've never been able to before. And all student athletes, women and men are able to do that now. Work us through how you advise families now that seek your counsel. And I mean, I'm talking about during the recruiting process and how they are sifting the impact of name, image, and likeness opportunities along with what that university provides for their student athlete. That this is all, to be just articulated that question makes my head explode <laughs> because it has to be different at Alabama than it is. It's probably, okay, let's, do, let's, let's use my alma mater. Different at Alabama than it is at Bowling Green State University. Those are two division one schools, but there's power five and there's not. Right. Right. So what we see is that name, image, and likeness is becoming an asset that schools use in the recruiting process, just like they use the other assets of, uh, look at our facilities. We've got the best facilities. Look at our coaching staff. We've invested tens of millions of dollars into our coaching staff. Look at our academics. You know, all of that goes into it. Name, image, and likeness is now another asset to be used. Now, to be clear, Name, image, the guarantee or the promise of name, image, and likeness deals are not supposed to be used in recruiting. We can have a whole other part of this conversation where we go into what's allowed, what's not allowed. Um, because <laughs> let's let's just also be very clear that you know schools were doing what they wanted to do prior to name, image, and likeness, and so you know now they may be looking at using name, image, and likeness to legit legitimize some things. But but when when I'm talking to families, I think the key is for them to. Again, and, and, and I want to make sure that it's clear what my role is. I am a, a non-agent sports attorney. So I don't go out and find deals for families. I don't try to determine what their fair market value is, what the value of their social media is. What I want to do is make sure that before they sign with, let's say, a marketing agent, before they sign an endorsement deal, that their rights are protected and that they understand what they're getting into. But because of that kind of independent approach, I have a lot of families and a lot of parents who are asking for guidance, thoughts, perspective. And I think whenever they're looking at name, image, and likeness, use that as part of your decision-making process, but don't let that be the only part of your decision-making process because there's a lot that goes into it. Playing time is going to matter, right? Being able to be at a place, you know, a school that has a great platform, right? We know the, we know the Power 5 schools and the schools with the biggest athletic programs, and we know the schools with the best media deals and all these kind of things, right? All of that goes into the equation, let name, image, and likeness be a part of it. But, but what we're seeing, and we've seen this at the high school level because some high school student athletes can participate, that there are some high school student athletes that have a huge social media following already. And because of that, the value of being at a particular brand of an institution doesn't have as much of an impact on their individual earning potential when it comes to name, image, and likeness, which is why I think that we're going to start seeing HBCUs have some really interesting 
uh, capabilities because of name, image, and likeness, and student athletes being able to earn compensation that can highlight um, all the benefits of HBCUs and, and potentially changing and turning around some athletic programs. Luke Fedlin with us here on Forward Progress has spent the last two decades advising athletes in so many different spaces, an expert here on name, image, and likeness. So you, know, you take me exactly where I want to go. Uh, Forward Progress is about the confluence of race and sports. What are we finding uh, as it pertains to young brown and black student athletes and them being able to take advantage of these opportunities when they're not necessarily the star of the show? And what I mean by that is I've, I've witnessed what you explained earlier, that you'll find uh, a, a young white counterpart who has figured out social media, plays golf, and has the tonnage of stuff coming uh, his or her way uh, with a savvy that just is a part of his or her life, coming from middle school to high school, just being of this era with resources. Are we finding a challenge in, in, in the other space? You know, I think it's, it, it's um, the challenge I think comes from an educational perspective. And I will always wear the education banner, you know, on my sleeve because to me, it sounds so cliche, but education is power. What we find a lot of times is that, and I, I talk to parents, I talk to uncles, I talk to family members of, of, of elite athletes and there's no, there's no knowledge and experience of, of any of this. So let's think about this. If you're, if you're you know, a young black or brown athlete, right, who's elite, has opportunities to go to different schools and do different things, who is it that's coming in to help advise you? Typically, what we've seen is that people who come in to try to provide, quote unquote, education are people who are impacted directly by the outcome of the decision that that athlete or their family makes. So now, so now you've got somebody who's trying to tell you, show you the ropes and tell you the right path and help guide you, who really is just wanting to sign you up as a client, right, to be able to, you know, work with you down the road and things along those lines. And that, let's just be honest, I don't want to speak in complete generalities, but that is oftentimes using your example, one of the differences that we see versus the, the white counterpart student athlete who's the golfer, who's, you know, whose family has raised them through the country club experience, right? And they've, they've got the knowledge and the experience because they've been around lawyers and know what role lawyers can play in their family. Or, Afford it, or, yeah. Right, or around financial advisors, et cetera. Sometimes this is the first time. And so the education can't just be on how do I navigate this and understand NIL? It has to go back to help me understand financial literacy, help me understand how do we plan for this? How do we protect ourselves and how do we navigate this brand new environment that we're experiencing? We, we needed an hour just for this conversation, but we, we've come down to our allotted time frame. But I do want to get one more in before you run. Uh, what, what's the road ahead? What, what does this look like five years from now, 10 years from now? Is it basically, as a high school elite athlete, you have to have this layer of protection and representation coming in? Over the next five to 10 years, it's going to be really interesting to see where things go. And here's why. The only you know, a lot of people are asking for this national standard because right now name, image, and likeness is really governed by each individual school and their policy. And if they're in a state that has a state law, obviously the school's policy has to follow that state's law. The only two organizations that can really create this national standard would be the NCAA or Congress. The NCAA is not going to be able to do it. They lost. They got their butts kicked, you know, at the Supreme Court level in NCAA versus Alston case in a unanimous decision. And, and while that didn't have to do directly with NIL, the language of the opinion was very clear that 
hey, um, this is going to be the process that we use for evaluating this. So NCAA, you don't have that authority to restrict student athletes in that way. So then we've got Congress. Congress right now is dealing with a lot of other things, infrastructure, uh, partisan issues, uh, I don't, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, there are a lot of other things that go probably go higher in the legislative agenda than, you know, should student athletes get compensated. And to that end, there are going to be some significant challenges in figuring out what that national standard is. So what does that mean for the next three to five years? What it means is that the market is going to continue to evolve and grow and schools, student athletes, athletic departments are going to become more and more innovative and creative in terms of what name image and look likeness looks like at that particular institution. Quick story. Eight months ago, there were no schools allowing, they were even talking about allowing student athletes to use the school's protected logos and, and marks, uh, trademarks that they have. But once one school said, you know what, we'll let our student athletes do that, then other schools start following suit. And that's what's going to continue to drive this market is that schools are going to be more innovative and try to come up with creative new ways to help both recruit and retain their talent because of the transfer portal. They got to make sure that they're retaining their talent. But in, individual student athletes are also going to be more and more creative in the types of deals that they're doing. So I think in three to five years, we're going to be much more comfortable with this notion of student athletes earning their own compensation. And I think in some respects, wowed by the creativity that they've been able to exhibit in, as they navigate name, image, and likeness. Luke Fedel, thank you so much for the time. We need more time with you. I hope we can call on you again when we need you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks for the time, Jason. I appreciate it. Great to dive inside name, image, and likeness with the uh, non-agent sports attorney uh, here on Forward Progress. When we come back, our spotlight on Black History Month continues. Just take a look at the University of Maryland. We will with you. They're doing something that's beyond just talking about diversity, equality, and their athletic department and beyond. Forward progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress continues. Amina Lassen sitting in with Kirk Morrison and Jason Jackson here to let you know about an awesome program uh, that uh, you, you really want to hear about this. The NBA Future Basketball Operation Stars program is designed to develop uh, and pipeline future basketball operations leaders who identify as women and are people of color for front office team opportunities. I mean, if you have one of these, my man, <laughs> you might. Well, you I'd, might just, be, I'd be commissioner. I knew, I knew it was spinning in your mind right now. I want I'd you to be talk commissioner. Well, the program provides unique hands-on learning and professional development immersion experience with training and full-time team exposure. Applications are being accepted through Friday, February 25th. I mean, I do not believe you still, I don't think you're eligible anymore. Go to NBA.com for more information and to apply. This is a really cool initiative. Now, like most of us, we're just coming in on the ground level and you're just crawling and you try to get crumbs over this space. And, hey, are you guys working after hours? Let me see if I can get over and that's I'm over here doing table tents for marketing, but I want to go work over in basketball ops. Man, what a wonderful, just dynamic of another entry into an organization. Dax, take it a step back. Take it a step back before that. Even making tents for marketing is... That's not something that's widely available or, or right. easily accessible, right? That's still a place where, believe it or not, there's a lot of cronyism, nepotism, 
and even just straight up like just blind prejudice when it comes to people hiring you know i think one of the things i think people always think is that there's a nefarious plan to keep people marginalized people out it, a lot of times it's sad it's not even that it's just they don't even know they're doing it they don't even know they don't even realize when they look up and see a room of white faces white men that anything is wrong with that picture so uh, any program that pretty much forces people to be cognizant of the diversity of their offices uh, their front offices. That's great. That's a great thing. Then you take it a step further. Basketball operations is the most hallowed operation within a, a basketball team, right? That's the one that everyone, when they say, "I want to work in sports," that's what they think they're going to be doing. Going to be making trades and doing all that stuff. So as a result, it is extremely hard to get into for anybody, for anybody. Uh, but you know, as I've said many a time, it would appear when you look across many front offices. And I, I speak from experience on this, that if you're white and you work in a front office, you can have come from any background, an academic background, a finance, a finance background from Wall Street. Uh, maybe you played college. Maybe you played in the NBA. There's all types of entry points for white people. For black people, the first question is, where did you play? And sure enough, you look around a lot of front offices, there's a reason why you recognize a lot of those names. Oh, I remember him. He played for the Lakers back in the 80s. Oh, yeah, I remember him. He was a star at UConn, right? We've got it's an abundance. And I'm, by the way, I'm not arguing against, you know, people with a playing background. Uh, obviously, they're, they're incredibly imperative to a basketball operation. I'm saying that for that to be the, the one prerequisite for someone of color, where that prerequisite doesn't exist in the opposite. That's an issue. Um, I remember I got into a conversation with Michael Wilbon a few years ago during the finals. And because uh, Michael Wilbon had written something along the lines of uh, these teams are being run by analytics people and it's all a bunch of white guys who never played. And Wilbon's kind of assumption out of that was because black people aren't into analytics. And I said, respectfully, Mike, that's that's BS. Because if you're in analytics, basically it means, some, it means I'm into sports and I'm good at math. And to say that black people aren't into analytics is implying that there are no black people who are good at math, right? Or, or the ones who are good at math, they hate sports. That just doesn't make sense. I know because I'm good at math and I'm into sports. And I went to Georgia Tech where many of my best friends were the same. The reason I got a job in sports is because my buddy Kendrick Cummings, who was an electrical engineering major, was the one that told me, hey, the Hawks are hiring. Let's go down there. Now, Ken went on to have a great career in engineering and then into sales, and he, he's done well for himself. Let's not shed any tears for my buddy Ken. But the fact is, I know that if Ken had had the opportunities that were available to me as I progressed in this field, he would have done that stuff. But he didn't have, he wasn't, he didn't have the same kind of exposures. And, and by the way, neither, I mean, to, to be honest, I, I didn't have anyone to look up to or, or kind of a roadmap. 
we figured all that stuff on our own. So when this, when you tell me about this program, it warms my heart because I know so many kids who say, hey, how can I be like you? How can I do what you did? And I'm like, man, I don't even, I don't even know how I did it. But now I know <laughs> there's a program you can aspire to <clears throat> get you in the door. Very similar to the uh, NBA HBCU fellowship uh, that is developing uh, 60 fellowships for front office work in the league office, as well as with teams. We now turn our attention to the Black History Month Spotlight, uh, and we turn our full attention to the University of Maryland doing it big. Maryland became the first FBS school with a Black president, athletic director, and head football coach. Wait, I didn't nail that right there. This month is part of SiriusXM's Big Ten Radio's coverage of Black History Month. All three men, President. Dr. Daryl Pines, Athletic Director Damon Evans, and football coach Mike Loxley joined Big Ten Radio analyst Mike Heron to discuss their careers and the importance of diversity in leadership positions. Let's start off with President Pines. You know, I came up as an assistant professor, uh, came to Maryland in 1994, rose up all the way through the ranks to be chair of my department, um, to be dean of the Clark School of Engineering, and ultimately to be president. Uh, literally, it was, believe it or not, it was two years to the day, today's Valentine's Day, I was, had a press conference on Valentine's Day of 2020, um, in which I was announced as president. I had cupcakes for anyone who wanted to show up in Stamp Student Union. And, and I actually, you know, I've been reflecting on this day, not because of this interview, but just how far we've come. And uh, just, you know, as a university, um, our athletic program, you know, two years ago, we were in the midst of COVID and Coach Loxley was probably had a number of, and, and A.D. Evans had angst about whether we would start the football season or any season of any sport. And, you know, I'm a new president. This is probably the most difficult decision to be made <laughs> during that year, at least, is whether we would have fall sports. And um, we had to make some tough choices. Um, so fall 2020 was not ideal. And then uh, we re resurrected and were resilient and came back in fall of 2021. And we had a wonderful, outstanding season, thanks to Coach Loxley. And it's uh, been a, just a, a joy to work with these two gentlemen um, and to, you know, chart the course for excellence in our athletic programs. Dr. Pines there. Now, Mr. Heron's discussion with athletic director Damon Evans. I believe in college athletics, we have a unique platform and I always try to tell our staff that our student athletes, and I think the student athlete voice, it, it needs to be heard. So first and foremost, I want our student athletes to be educated and understand about this uh, social unrest and the social uh, injustices that take place. So when they're out there speaking about it or they're taking action, they understand why they're doing so. But I also want others who don't look like them or people, all this diversity that we have within our department, I want us to have a better understanding of one another. Uh, our diverse backgrounds is what makes us so good at what we do and makes us strong. So if we can provide that education, we give people the opportunity to have a voice, and then we utilize our platform um, to really tackle these issues. And I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, our student athletes have come up with uh, key words and phrases that are important to them. Uh, we've done some things on our courts and our fields uh, to let people know where we stand as an institution. But that comes from the people, that comes from the staff, that comes from the student athletes. 
and the coaches. And we're going to continue to utilize this platform to make sure that uh, we get our message across and let people know that it's time for change. Uh, and it's not just about a one-time thing. This has got to be a movement that continues. Terps AD, Damon Evans there with Anthony. And last but not least, head football coach, Mike Loxley. Yeah, you know, there is a responsibility, and I think Damon alluded to it earlier, a responsibility that comes along with uh, sitting in this chair, leading the, the, the Maryland football program. And I'm not afraid of it. As I said earlier, just, you know, where I am in my life and knowing that I have the support uh, of my two bosses to be able to have these real discussions. And I mean, to me, that's the, the whole key to it is, you know, everybody focuses on the problem. And, and again, here at Maryland, we're solution-based. Uh, I know from following the directives of Dr. Pines and following the directives of Damon, uh, that everything is geared toward educating our players and our people on our campus. Uh, and, and the word that comes to mind for me is respect. Um, if we all have a respect for each other's differences, you know, I always say if the, if the real world could be more like the locker room I have downstairs here in Jones Hill House, where the name on the front of the jersey overpowers everything, your socioeconomic background, your race, your religion, your sexual orientation, that if you just had that respect, and so there is a responsibility that comes with teaching that we are on a campus of educating and we want to send out the, the people that we have been uh, brought to lead the importance of how to use these rights and responsibilities that they have, while also learning to respect diversity. You know, growing up here in the shadow of Maryland's campus, and I say this, uh, I didn't grow up seeing it because I saw powerful minority people every single day. I mean. I tell the story here on campus, you can see a 6'6 black dude with dreads walking our campus and he isn't a basketball player, he's an engineering student. Whereas when I've been on some campuses where I see a 6'6 guy walking, I knew who he was. And that's been the Maryland way. I mean, Chocolate City, DC was the first progressive minority area of the country. And now other places have grown off of it or, or spurned off of what, what has happened here. And so. Uh, it's in our DNA here at the University of Maryland uh, to lead uh, the charge of, uh, of, of getting it out there that if people can see us in these roles, if minorities in this area can see a Mike Loxley, a Damon Evans, a Dr. Daryl Pines, it lets them know you can achieve it. I know what just having, you know, President Obama in, in office has done for motivating other minorities that, hey, that can happen. So, um, there is definitely a responsibility, but I don't think anyone on this call shies away from it. And again, we're going to always be solution-based and educators in teaching the people that are brought under our tutelage the importance of using some of the, the rights that they have in their platforms the correct way. To hear the full 30-minute Maryland Roundtable and more interviews from Big Ten Radio, go to the SXM app and search Big Ten Black History Month. That's going to do it for us. I mean, thank you so much for sitting in for our man, Kurt. We appreciate it. Come back around whenever you like, my man. Always, always, Jackson. We appreciate you. So, for me, I'm Hassan. Our producer, Pernell Brown, I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Project.